C.S. Lewis once said, though our feelings come and go, God's love for us does not. When it comes to God, the question really has never been whether or not he loves you. Because he does love you. Jesus made no bones about it when he said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John 3.16, as the Apostle Paul reiterated later, God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. See, when it came down to what God would do with us in response to our behavior, our sin, our rejection of him, God chose to love first. While we were still sinning, he chose to love first, not because of our behavior, but because of his nature, which is love defined. Which is why the Apostle John said, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love, 1 John 4, 7 and 8. So whether or not God loves you has never been the question. The question is, do you love God? Or do you just love the things that you associate with God? The blessings, the promises, the, the culture of the church, the way of life maybe that you grew up in. Because there's a difference between loving the things that we associate with God and actually loving God himself, which has come to light. I think under the pressure this past year has brought to bear upon our country between pandemics and politics and social unrest and the, the resulting behavior of those who profess to love God in response to all of that. Because if we truly love Him, that love for God will show up undeniably in how we love others. And yet, if, if we're being honest through everything that has unfolded this past year, at times much of the professing church has been judgmental toward the world. We've made certain sins nearly unpardonable while almost winking at others. At times we've been more focused, I think, on spreading politics than we have with spreading the gospel because sometimes I think we're more concerned with winning arguments than we are with winning hearts. But in truth, our immediate response to the world should always be to love first because that's what Jesus did for us. Yet that's clearly not what we've been witnessing among a large segment of the church this past year. And now, now the world is pushing back against the church in ways we haven't always seen in our lifetime before. Not because they're tired of Jesus, but because they're tired of the way the people who are supposed to love Jesus are behaving toward them. To the point that I think it calls into question, for the rest of the world at least, what is it that we're more in love with? Jesus? our own religious culture. And we have no better warning of this in all scripture about mistaking those two things as one and the same than we do right here in this story today as we continue working our way through the book of 1 Samuel where Saul, a very religious individual who was given every opportunity imaginable to love God and others as the leader of Israel, he blows it in epic proportions because at the end of the day, he was more in love with the things he associated with God than he was with God himself. And it's a warning to all of us that in the pursuit of all that we believe to be good and right, all of the promises and blessings, that we don't forget the one who gives all of those promises and blessings and what we've been called to do with them. 
Because listen, when it's all said and done, this story that we're living in, it's not about whether America is liberal or conservative. It's not about whether you wear a mask or not. It's not even about our civil liberties. And I'm not saying those things don't matter. Certainly they do. But loving God first and loving other people as much as we love ourselves, well, that had better matter more to us than all of those other issues combined if those who are lost have any hope of knowing that same love. Right? Because His love for others comes through us, through you and through me, loving them with the love of Christ, even if we disagree on everything else. By the way, that is how this country is going to change. That is how this culture is going to change. That's how this world's view of, the God, of God and His people, that's how it's going to change. When the world sees Christians setting aside everything else and loving first, loving God and loving them more than we love anything and everything else. Okay, because you can live a very religiously faithful life. You can. You can surround yourself with the best Christians that you know. You can learn His Word and listen to the greatest sermons ever preached. But if you don't love God first and others at least as much as you love yourself, then you'll always care more about all of those other things than you do about people who do not know Him. The people He's called you to, who are waiting to experience His love through you. So let's jump back in the story where we left off last time at 1 Samuel chapter 28 in what has to be one of the strangest stories in all of biblical scripture. We'll begin with the first seven verses. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. When Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So the Philistines, under their vassal king Achish, in whose territory David and his men had been living for over a year now in order to escape Saul, they began to gather their armies from all five of their city-states in order to attempt to gain control over the northern Jezreel Valley, which was a wide uh, an agriculturally rich plain that spans as far east as the Jordan River. And so Achish uh, amasses his military at Shunem, which was located on a hill next to the Via Maris. It was a major trade route passing through the Promised Land in the Jezreel Valley, which was also a major source of revenue from caravans using the highway. So this was an important place. And Shunem is also in the north of Israel, a part of the tribal allotment of Issachar, according to Joshua 19. And so the fact that the Philistines had penetrated that far into Israel already is a strong indication, first of all, of their dominance over Saul's kingdom. And secondly, it explains why Saul is so afraid of them, having been successful, right, against the Philistines in the past. And as far as the Philistine king is concerned, uh, having seen David's ability firsthand to turn 600 ragged outcasts of society into a formidable fighting force who'd never lost a battle to date, 
Of course, Achish wants David and his men right there by his side in this offensive against Israel. So he says to David, understand that you and your men are going to go out with me in the army. In other words, David, there's no way I'm going into battle without you. Which, of course, puts David in a very difficult spot because he's been living under Achish's rule and his good graces toward David. And yet there's no way, there's no way David is going to destroy his own people. Right? He won't even destroy Saul, who's been trying to kill him for years. So for David, going to war against God's people is not an option, which is what makes his answer to Achish so brilliant. He says, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. Which, of course, in Achish's mind means that David is with him, but David never says he's with him. He simply said, okay, you're about to see exactly what I'm capable of, which was probably a thinly veiled threat, as David would surely turn on Achish and the Philistines in the battle and defend his own people. And yet the other Philistine leaders are not as easy to fool as Achish, as we'll see in the next chapter. So they end up sparing David from having to fight against the Israelites or the Philistine people he'd been living with as they send David and his men back home to sit this battle out. So in preparation for war, Saul gathers his army at Mount Gilboa, a vantage point from which he could observe the movements of the Philistines on the western slopes of the hill of Morah across the valley. And when he sees the Philistines in such large numbers gathered, so deep in Israelite territory, Saul is racked with debilitating fear. And as a bit of backstory, verse 3 tells us that Samuel, the great prophet, had long since died and been buried and mourned by all of Israel. And that Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. Mediums and necromancers were common at the time throughout the ancient Near East, particularly in Canaan. They were the individuals who practiced witchcraft or the dark arts in order to communicate with the dead or even to conjure up their spirits, as we'll see. And according to the Torah, the Mosaic Law uh, in Leviticus 19.31, also in chapter 20, verse 6 and 27, uh, also in Deuteronomy 18.10 through 12, this was a capital offense, right, deserving of death to consult with a medium or a necromancer. And so Saul had them banished from the land, which was the right thing to do. The problem for Saul was he'd also killed all the priests at Nob back in chapter 22, so he couldn't get direction from priests. And the one surviving priest fled to David with the ephod, the garment containing the Urim and Thummim that were used by the Old Testament priests to determine God's will on certain matters. So that option was out for Saul as well. And Samuel was now dead which eliminated the prophetic voice that had spoken into Saul's life for so many years before. So Saul is without an advisor to help guide him through the overwhelming situation he now faces. And his response is a clear indication that when Saul put the mediums and necromancers out of the land, he did it for religious reasons, not because he loved God. Because here he is now running straight to the very thing that God hates in order to get what Saul wants. And although God allows it to happen, and even for Samuel to speak to Saul through this medium, as we'll see, it was detestable in God's sight, and a big part of the reason that Saul would be dead in less than 24 hours, according to 1 Chronicles 10, 13, and 14. The point is, Saul was religious, but it didn't bring him closer to God. Okay, religious behavior in and of itself isn't bad. But if your religious behavior does not come out of a love for Christ, then that behavior can actually do more harm than good, as we'll see here with Saul, because you're putting your hope in how you behave rather than in who you love. 
the one who loved you first, Jesus Christ. That's why he said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. That's a, that is a description of people who practice some pretty exceptional religious behavior. Prophesying in Jesus' name. Casting out demons in Jesus' name. Doing many mighty works in Jesus' name. And yet none of it amounts to anything. Because although they practiced good religious behavior in the name of Jesus, they didn't truly love him. They didn't know him. So Saul loved the law, but he didn't love God. And as a result, even his best religious behavior couldn't draw him any closer to God. And I'm telling you, it doesn't matter if it's the people of God in the Old Testament or the people of God in the New Testament or the people of God today. And I've said it before, when it comes to our behavior, religion without relationship is a recipe for disaster every single time. Because you cannot perform your way into heaven. You'll never be good enough based on your behavior to deserve God's grace and salvation. That's why putting your faith in religious behavior actually breeds self-righteousness. Because then you're comparing your behavior to other people's behavior as a measuring stick for how worthy you are of God's grace. Instead of comparing yourself to the incomparable, matchless, perfect, spotless sacrifice, Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God who willingly died for you and for me while we were yet sinners, wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked on our best day without a hope in this world until Jesus made us worthy in Him. Oh, for the grace of God that saved a sinner like me, whose very best behavior is rubbish without the redeeming work of Christ. It is a grave error to mistake religious behavior with righteous behavior. In fact, you know, the majority of people who refused to follow Jesus when he was on the earth were the religious people. The men and women who grew up going to the synagogue and learning about God. And so the very people who should have been flocking to him were instead rejecting the Messiah without even realizing it because they were more committed to and familiar with, more in love with the religious culture they'd grown up in than they were in love with and familiar with God himself. They loved the law, but they didn't love God because they'd practiced and preached their religious traditions and doctrines for so long they could no longer distinguish between what was religious and what was righteous even when those two things were worlds apart. We do the same thing sometimes today. When we compare our behavior to that of lost people and it makes us feel righteous, self-righteous, because we don't act like they do, or at least we're not supposed to. So we begin to feel justified in our behavior, justified in our self-righteousness, forgetting, first of all, that we're only made righteous in Christ, not by our behavior. Secondly, sometimes we forget that we were once lost too. Which means when you look at a lost person, regardless of their behavior, 
The overwhelming feeling that should motivate your response to that behavior is love first. The love of Christ that was freely given to us while we were yet sinners. Philip Brooks once said, One who has been touched by grace will no longer look on those who stray as those evil people or those poor people who need our help. Nor must we search for signs of love worthiness. Grace teaches us that God loves because of who God is, not because of who we are. Let's keep reading. Verses 8 through 14. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night, and he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he's cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? The woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. And he said to her, What is his appearance? She said, An old man is coming up, and he's wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. And he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. So Saul, along with two bodyguards, make their way to Endor, six miles away, two miles northeast of the Philistine camp on the hill of Morah. In other words, Saul had to walk right past the massive Philistine army by night just to get to the witch at Endor. And at first, she's not keen to grant Saul's request because her trade is illegal and strictly forbidden. So Saul not only presses her with reassurance that she'll not be punished in any way, but he actually swears an oath invoking God's covenant name to assure the medium that she will not be punished for breaking God's covenant. It's Saul actually attempting to turn God against his own word, which is not only foolish, it's actually blasphemous. Nonetheless, the medium agrees to call up Samuel for Saul, and yet when it works, she sees Samuel coming up probably out of a pit that was commonly dug in the floor for necromancing, she cries out with a loud voice, realizing what was happening, and, and terrified, she asks Saul, why have you deceived me? You're Saul. Then after reassuring her again, Saul asks her to describe what she sees, to which she replies, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, what's his appearance? She said, an old man is coming up, and he's wrapped in a robe. Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. If you read that whole exchange in the original language, the word used for Samuel's robe, me'il, in the Hebrew is a description of a particular sleeveless robe. And it's the same word that's used to describe Samuel's robe in chapter 15, verse 27, where Saul grabs Samuel's robe and tears it. The point being, the medium describes Samuel in greater detail than our English translation would suggest and leaving no doubt in Saul's mind that this was in fact Samuel back from the dead. Part of what makes this story so fascinating, apart from the obvious supernatural element involved, is the fact that as clearly as Saul understood the law, he was so willing, even eager, to break the law, punishable by death, by the way, according to Leviticus 26. Again, he, he was willing to do that in order to be with Samuel one more time. It wasn't actually information that Saul was seeking from Samuel, even if that's what he said. No, it was comfort that he was seeking from Samuel. Because Saul always had God-fearing men in his life who brought comfort 
an assurance to him. From Samuel to David to his adult son, Jonathan, Saul always had someone there who feared God to comfort and strengthen him. We've seen it all throughout this book. And yet now, for the first time in his life, Saul is alone. And because he was not a God-fearing man himself, he knew he was in big trouble. So he went looking for Samuel by any means necessary. And it's terribly sad because throughout his life, Saul was surrounded by God-fearing people, but it didn't make him fear God. It simply comforted him that he was with someone who did. And I think this is a question that we should all consider today. Am I more comfortable being with the people who love God than I am being with God himself? Are you completely comfortable being in church, but completely uncomfortable praying in church? Is it easy to listen to someone teach the word, but hard to study it for yourself? Do you feel hopeful when you're with the people of God, but hopeless when it's just you and God? Do you feel loved when you're with God's people, but nothing when you're not? Because if you love God first, then you'll want to be with him more than you want to be with anyone else. It's not that you don't want to be with other people, by the way. Jesus loved being with his disciples. The Last Supper, he said, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Luke 22, 15, Jesus loved being with his disciples. But he would often steal away to desolate places to be alone with the Father he loved first. You see, if Saul had loved and feared God the way Samuel did, the way David did, the way Jonathan did, he would have had no need to seek out a witch to call up Samuel's spirit from the dead. But because he didn't know God any more than he knew that witch at Endor, he was willing to break the command of God to be around the people of God, but not God himself. You know how crazy that is? Yet we do the same thing today. Listen, if you're seeking advice and direction and Comfort for your life from friends and family and pastors and books and podcasts and systems and speakers and counselors more than you're seeking God himself. Then it's time to ask the question, who do I love first? Do I love comfort more than I love the God of all comfort? 2 Corinthians 1.3. Do I look for wisdom and knowledge more than I look for the God of all wisdom and knowledge? Colossians 2.3. Do I search for hope in this life more than I search for the God of hope? Romans 15, 13. Do I long for love more than I long for the God who is love? 1 John 4, 8. It matters that we ask ourselves these questions because if we're being honest, I think sometimes we seek after the blessings and promises of God more than we seek after God himself. Yet there's a big difference between loving the things that we associate with God and actually loving God, which shows up in how we love each other. So we're called to love God first, then to love others as much as we love ourselves. And look, when you love like that, all of those other things you long for, well, they tend to take care of themselves. J.I. Packer once said, once you become aware that the main business that you're here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. Let's finish our story for today. Verse 15 to the end of, chap of the chapter. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? 
Saul answered, I'm in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore I've summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord, did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, Therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. There was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and night. The woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he uh, was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I've taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you've said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants together with the woman urged him and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house and she quickly killed it. And she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. So Samuel asks Saul what, what this is all about. Why have you disturbed me? So Saul goes on to explain his predicament that the Philistines are warring against him, and yet he's unable to hear from God. So what should I do? Interestingly, Samuel doesn't answer Saul's question. He simply picks up where he left off before his own death by prophesying Saul's death due to Saul's ongoing disobedience to the word of the Lord throughout Saul's rule as king. And although certainly... Not the first. This was the last sermon that Samuel would ever preach to Saul, confirming everything that God had ever spoken over him. And it terrified Saul because for the first time in his life, he knew that he was out of options and he was out of time. And so with no way to escape his fate, Saul resigns himself to battle and to death in just a few hours. It's a terribly sad ending to a man with so much potential chosen by God to lead God's people for the sake of God's glory. And yet, even though all he had to do was obey God uh, and God's word given to him time and time again, over and over again, Saul agreed with God's word, but he chose not to live by it. Even in this encounter with Samuel, verse 20, referring to Saul, says that there was no strengthened him for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. In other words, Saul had been fasting in preparation for this meeting with Samuel. It's amazing how much Saul agreed with God's word and yet he continually refused to live by it, picking and choosing the parts he wanted to observe and the parts he wanted to ignore. And yet as crazy as that sounds, we do the same thing today. Listen, agreeing with God's word Believing that it's accurate and true, that is not the same thing as obeying it. In fact, every time Saul heard God's word, he agreed with it. Right? When, when, when Samuel called out to him, when David called him out, Saul felt sorry for what he'd done. He was convicted by the word of the Lord through Samuel and through David. He admitted to his failure, to his sin. And then every time, he went right back to living the same way he always had. There was no change. There was no obedience to the word because he didn't love the God who spoke that word first. He didn't love God before and more than anything else. He didn't love God first. And as a result, 
He wasn't able to love others the way that God had called him to. And listen, neither will you. You can agree with God's word all day long, but if you don't love God more than everything and everyone else in your life, then you won't obey his word or love his people the way that you're meant to. No matter how many sermons Saul had heard, he'd heard a lifetime of them, by the way, from Samuel and from David and from his own son, Jonathan. Saul heard the word of God over and over and over again. And he agreed with it. Yet he continued to live in disobedience to it because he didn't love first. He didn't love God first. And he didn't love others as much as he loved himself. James, the brother of Jesus, said, Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no bearer, a hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. James 1, 22 through 25. Okay? Do you want to be blessed in your doing? Do you want to be blessed in what you do with your life? Well, then obey God's word. And you know what his word says? It says love first. Love God first. And then love others as yourself. In fact, Jesus said on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Matthew 22, 40. Because you can live a very religiously faithful life. You can surround yourself with the best Christians you know. You can learn his word and listen to the greatest sermons ever preached. And you can agree with all of that. But if you don't love God first and then other people as much as you love yourself, then you'll always care about those other things more than you do about the people who don't know Him, the people He's called you to, the people who are waiting to experience that love through you. And I'm telling you, this is our chance. This is our time to get it right. When the world is looking for answers to pandemics and politics and social unrest and executive orders and vaccines and fraud and conspiracies and on and on and on and on it goes. There are far more questions being asked today than answers being offered. And I know those are all very serious topics, by the way, that demand serious attention and serious consideration. But if you will commit yourself through it all to love first... Before you do or say anything else, if you will simply love God first and love others, then you will become the change that this world is desperately longing for. To experience the love of Christ through you and through me. 1 John 4, 19. Right? To experience the love of Christ. Is that why we love first Because he first loved us. 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. I can't think of a better way to actually demonstrate that love today than sharing in the Lord's table.
as we remember exactly what he did for us, all because he chose to love us first while we were yet sinners. Would you stand with me today?